Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. Katie, you and I come from sort of a jazz family. We know jazz. We listen to jazz. Mm-hmm. Would you say you you know most of the very well-known jazz musicians by name? Well, if our brother was listening to him and talking about him in high school, then I know about him. That's everyone. <laughs> That's literally everyone. Right. He's my filter. If, if yeah. he knew them and talked about them, then I know them. <laughs> So I'm going to read you a list of really influential jazz musicians, and you tell me if you've heard of these people. Okay. Duke Ellington. Yeah. Benny Goodman. Mm-hmm. Thelonious Monk. Yeah. Charlie Parker. Mm-hmm. Miles Davis. Yep. Dizzy Gillespie. Mm-hmm. Mary Lou Williams. No. You haven't heard of Mary Lou Williams? No, I haven't, and I just realized that was a long list of men followed by a woman that I never heard of. Ah. It's okay, no one's heard of Mary Lou Williams, except for, like, our brother. (laughs) (laughs) No, jazz people know Mary Lou Williams. No one else knows Mary Lou Williams. And yet, everyone in that list of names, male names, that I just read to you, was a fervent admirer of Mary Lou Williams. Wow. She taught them, or she wrote their songs... Whoa. Or she completely changed the way that they did music. Oh my gosh. And yet we've never heard of her. Wow. So, today we're going to learn about Mary Lou Williams, pioneer and inventor of jazz. Sweet. Awesome. I'm Katie Nelson. And I'm Olivia Mickle. And this is What's Her Name? Fascinating women you've never heard of. Okay, Katie, do you have a passion? Do you have something that you must do or you will be incomplete? Yes, maybe five. Oh. So you have five (laughs) things that you must do or you will not be. Okay, well, now that you phrase it that way, I don't know. I feel like I have maybe five things that I really love to do. I don't know if there's anything that... I won't be me if I don't do. Do you have anything that if you didn't do it, life would be meaningless? That's a good question. I don't know. Maybe (laughs) not. (laughs) I don't have anything like that. Like you said, I have things that I love to do that mean a lot to me. But I don't have anything that would just destroy me if I couldn't do this thing. I can't think of any. So for Mary Lou Williams, jazz was that thing. She almost didn't survive the experience of losing jazz. Wow. First, let's find out who is this Mary Lou Williams that we're talking about. Yes, please. She should be included in the list of jazz greats that regular non-jazz people can name. Mm-hmm. These were her peers. These were her students. These were her friends. And yet... Yeah, that is wild. I have heard of all of them, but I haven't heard of Mary Lou Williams. Today we're going to find out why that is. Okay. 
To find out more about Mary Lou Williams, I contacted Carol Bash. I'm Carol Bash, and I'm the producer and director of Mary Lou Williams, The Lady Who Swings the Band. The Lady Who Swings the Band is a documentary about Mary Lou Williams' life, and it came out about two years ago, and I loved this film so much. So when I reached out to Carol Bash to ask if she'd be willing to do an interview for the podcast, I was thrilled when she said yes. Awesome. So Mary Lou Williams was in there at every stage of jazz. Her contributions track literally almost the entire history of jazz. She started at the very beginning and she was consistently influential. It wasn't just Mary Lou Williams stopped being inventive in the 1930s. She's playing swing in the 30s, moved into modern music in the 40s, bebop in the 50s, funk in the 60s, religious music in the 70s. You know, she just never stopped inventing. She never stopped innovating. She was always pushing the boundaries. That is really the story of her life, but it's also the story of how jazz progressed throughout those decades, and she was at the forefront of that. And actually, it's through my father-in-law that I got to know about Mary Lou Williams. Thank goodness, but he was a fan of her work. And it was while I was there to visit them that he had her playing on the stereo. She was playing one of her later pieces, so it was in the 70s and it sounded, it was really funky and fresh. And I was like, wow, who is that? And he was like, that's Mary Lou Williams. She's one of the greats. I had just never even heard of her. So mind you, the music I'm listening to is by then like 30 years old. And I still thought fresh and great. But a year later, a book came out about her life. And the book is called Morning Glory, the biography of Mary Williams by Linda Dahl. And I read it from cover to cover. I gotta do a documentary about this woman. I mean, she's one of the pioneers and inventors of jazz. Why has nobody else focused on this woman? So I was like, well, this is it. I'm gonna do it. When Mary Lou was three years old, her mother tells the story that she sat down on her mother's lap at the piano and she started picking out melodies at three years old on the piano that were so astonishing and so advanced that her mother dropped her on the floor and ran out of the apartment to get the neighbors because she could not believe what she was hearing. <laughs> and this was excitement, like, come and look at what my little girl is doing, but also fear. These songs were nothing that you would ever expect a small child to be composing. Wow. Her mother was really disturbed by this. Mary Lou was born with a part of the placenta over her face. And in Southern African-American folklore, it's called being born with a veil. And that's a sign that the child will have visions. And it also is a sign that this child will be highly attuned to be creative as well. And so Mary Lou saw spirits. And so this is a whole other part of her life. She, she really would go into rooms and see spirits. And it haunted her. These visions were sometimes really frightening. And she couldn't control it. And they would just happen. And from a very, very early age, stories are told about her seeing souls, is what she called it. And her mom connects that always back to her birth and is scared of it. Right. Oh, that explains 
why her piano talent is so scary. It's like from another world. Yes. It's not right. So at three, she's making up her own melodies. From the moment she discovers the piano, they cannot keep her away from it. She is practicing constantly. She is playing the piano. She would sit at the player piano and put her hands on the keys and follow along. And not just our great aunt had a player piano. We used to do that and sit and you look like you're playing the piano. Oh, I loved it. Yeah, you felt like you were a genius. Yeah. She actually was a genius. By six years old, she was performing at events to like earn money. Like actually playing the tunes that she learned from the player piano? Her own things, too. Wow! Before she was 10 years old, she's being hired to play the piano for churches. Wow. For their services. She's playing with real band. Her mom was like a seamstress and clean clothes for white people. And there was a certain sense of strife. I mean, basically her mother and her grandmother were alcoholics. And so there was a lot of tension and chaos in the family. And Mary Lou being this very sensitive girl started hanging around musicians. They would come to the house, she would seek them out. The mom didn't really supervise. So she tells about musicians coming to town, They would want to hire her. And we're talking about, at this point, she's still younger than 10. So she was known as the little piano girl of East Liberty in Pittsburgh. Wow. So when she's 12 years old, she can't stand it anymore. And she runs off. A show comes to town. They hire her. And it's it's this vaudeville show where her future husband, John Williams, is already a part of. And he's like the saxophone player. And he didn't really like the idea that they hired this girl, (laughs) you know, (laughs) to play the band. Because, of course, we're dealing with men not understanding that women can play jazz. And when he heard her play, he was just astounded by how powerful she was at the keyboard. You know, and Mary Lou said throughout her life that, you know, you can take it however way you want it. It's just how her playing has always been described. And she sort of fell into saying that she played like a man. So she was, she had a very muscular, very strong sound at the piano. And, you know, you just listen to some of her boogie woogie. You don't need to say anything more. So she joins this vaudeville circuit and starts traveling around with this group, but she does that for several years. She is playing the piano. She's doing trick piano. At this point in the vaudeville circuit, it's really popular to do things like she's playing the piano with her elbows. She's spinning around on the piano stool so fast that her skirt flies up over her head and her bloomers are showing. So it's showmanship and flash over quality. At some point, one of the other musicians on the circuit comes up and says, Girl, I heard some really good chords in what you were playing. You should give up on all this stuff. You're a real musician. And she's so struck by this. It seems to have really amazed her. She hadn't realized maybe that she really was astounding, that she wasn't just a performer, that she could be a musician. Mm-hmm. There's a sharp line there for her. Hmm. And from that point forward, she decides, that's it, I'm not doing this anymore. And she casts off the vaudeville showiness and decides I'm a musician. Mm. It was through her husband that she eventually ended up in the Andy Kerr band, which was one of the early swing bands. You know, music was changing at this point. We're talking now the late 20s, early 30s, where it became swing. 
bigger bands, people coming to dance halls and ballrooms. And, you know, it's sort of like the bands you see in the 30s in the movies. Mary Lou was not a member of the Andy Kirk band. Andy Kirk did not want her to be a part of the band. They already had a piano player, but the piano player was sort of not consistent as far as attendance. Let's put it that way. I think he had like, a <laughs> drinking problem. They would bring Mary Lou in, come on and fill in, or if there was a lull in the evening, they would bring Mary Lou, and people, again, would be amazed at this little girl, she's like a late teens, little girl who could pound at the piano. So that was sort of her role in the Andy Kirk band until after they had a first recording gig. So famous producers are coming to hear Andy Kirk's band perform. And on the night that this famous producer is coming, Andy Kirk's piano player does not show up. He's drunk. He's missing. They have to go on. So he says, fine, fine. Let's have Mary Lou do it. She performs with them. This producer's in the audience. And he immediately offers them a recording contract in New York. This is Kansas City. They get on a train to go to New York and they leave her behind. What? Because Andy Kirk does not want a woman on his recording. He doesn't want to take a woman to New York. They're more trouble than they're worth. So he takes his band without her. They walk into the studio and the producer says, where's Mary Lou? Andy Kirk says, we don't need Mary Lou. We don't need her. He says, you do need her or you're not recording. <laughs> She's the reason that I brought you here. <laughs> so they send a telegram. Please, please come to New York. She gets on a train and they record an album. Wow. From that point on, she's in demand. <laughs> and not only did she become a part of the band, she was also hearing music and wanted to start composing because she had ideas, she had musical ideas. She didn't know how to write the music, but she, she knew that she could create music that was much more inventive than what was being played. And it was Andy Kirk that would sit down with her, transcribe her ideas, and then finally she was just like, teach me how to compose. And so he taught her how to write music. And even though they had sort of a, a very kind of contentious relationship in the sense that he definitely believed that you know, she was a woman and he had, he was you know a man at the time. So he wasn't really thrilled that she was a part of the band. But she does credit him with mentoring her as far as composition and writing. So as they're touring around, she starts realizing she can hear better music in her head than they're performing. She starts arranging and writing songs that are so far beyond anything that they've been doing. And she becomes their primary arranger and composer. Wow. She composed the hits that drove the band sound. Walking and Swinging and a lot of sax appeal. Mary's idea, the driving beat of these songs just got people up to dance. You know, they swung. That was what she was known for. She was known for being a great swing composer. She's hearing incredible, groundbreaking things in her head, and he keeps correcting her and saying, you can't do that. It's against the rules. <laughs> what rules? What rules? And he said, the rules of music. He's correcting her theory. You can't put a sixth in that chord. You can't do this mm. weird thing that you're doing. So he keeps fixing her arrangements. Her songs are wildly popular, and she's also 
everyone else is asking her to arrange things. And she's breaking the rules there too. She's not supposed to be arranging for anyone but Andy Kirk, but she does. She's arranging for Duke Ellington. She's arranging for Cab Calloway. She's wow. arranging for everybody. And they're not holding her back. So she's pushing the boundaries of jazz and the boundaries of jazz move. As she pushes them, new things start to become acceptable. So she stayed in the Andy Kirk band. Her marriage basically dissolved. There was a lot of complication there. And she stayed with the band for 12 years until there was a falling out, too, with Andy Kirk. Basically, she realized that she wasn't getting paid what she should be getting paid for being the arranger and the composer and the hit maker of the band. Right. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, things haven't changed that much. Yeah. And she struck out on her own. She decided to come to New York, New York City, and make a new life. This is like the beginning of the 40s. The music was changing, swing was dying. Smaller combos were happening of what we consider now, you know, nightclub jazz. So she was at the forefront, along with other musicians, of how do you write this new kind of music where people aren't necessarily supposed to get up and dance anymore. They're supposed to sit and listen to you. I had never thought about what a big shift this is. We have moved in a period of a couple of years from jazz that is for dancing to jazz that is for mm. sitting and listening to. Yeah. So she shifts really easily from swing. She's the queen of swing. She writes the most famous swing songs to combo jazz, to arranging for like three instruments. And she's brilliant. She's amazing. She's writing incredible things. And the skill set is so different to me that that's proof that yeah, she is wow. something really special. The Benny Goodman Orchestra doesn't start yeah. doing bebop. They stay the Benny yeah. Goodman Orchestra. I mean, there were still swing bands. There were still big orchestras, like, for instance, Duke Ellington, who loved Mary Lou and had her compose. She wrote for all the big name band leaders, which is astounding. And then also writing her own music and moving jazz forward into the smaller venues where people are really just coming to hear the musicians play. So Bebop arrives and it completely shifts the entire ground. If Benny Goodman was struggling to deal with combo jazz, he is completely left <laughs> behind by Bebop. And the people who are doing Bebop are almost exclusively, like even when you think about Bebop musicians, they're young, they're male, mm. they're cool. You know, they have no time for those old dudes. Music isn't for dancing. You sit and you feel, you know, that's what Bebop is about. It's about being weird and throwing out everything from the past. <laughs> she should not be able to do right. anything in this field, right? If if anyone typifies what right. Bebop is against, <laughs> it is her. And yet... When Bop came, a lot of the older musicians, like Andy Kerr, like Duke Ellington, couldn't really play Bop. It was so different from how jazz had been composed in the past that some of these musicians just stopped playing. But Mary Lou knew what the boppers were doing and they were enamored of how forward thinking she was that they actually came to her in her, in her apartment in Harlem and started taking lessons. And she used to have like a salon where Dizzy Gillespie and Thelonious Monk and Bud Powell and all these great musicians of the bop era would come and sit down and just hash out their ideas. So she was a mentor 
to all these modern jazz icons that we know of. You know, she was someone that they sort of came to to hear ideas from and to sort of sort of sit at her feet. All of the bebop musicians see in her a genius. They see in her someone who has been doing what they want to do. Thelonious Monk will pick her up at the club at four in the morning after she's been playing all night and all of these bebop musicians will come to her apartment and sit there and listen to her from four in the morning until noon. Ooh, wow. She holds a salon in her apartment with the fathers wow. of bebop and they are literally sitting at her feet. That's amazing. Is this why they call her the teacher of Thelonious Monk and Charlie Parker and Miles Davis? Yes. Wow. And they called her that. They talked about her as a mentor, as someone who opened up the doors to this new thing. Mm. And she, she's angry. This is, why? this should, because they're famous. And she is still the lady on the piano. Mm. All of the things that she wants to be, she wants to be taken seriously as a musician. She wants to be recognized for her innovative ideas. She wants to be recognized as a composer, as a serious, important contributor mm. to music, and she's not. Mm. The musicians recognize this. They all respect and honor and are amazed by her. Mm. She can't, she's trying and trying and trying to get a recording contract and cannot get one. She wants to lead her own band. 12 years with Andy Kirk, doing everything. Mm. But she is never offered her own band. She is never offered the front spot by any producer. And it's entirely because she's a woman. Wow. And of course, there's a whole dynamic of women having to be entertaining and kittenish and coy. And Mary Lou just wasn't into that. She's like, I'm a musician. That's that's how you're going to see me. That's how I'm presenting myself. I'm not necessarily going to entertain. I mean, it's interesting. You think about Miles Davis, who was also very much like, I'm a musician. I'm not here mm -hmm. to banter with the audience, you know, and, and yet he was seen as being cool. Yeah. <laughs> Mary Lou was not acceptable for how we expect a woman on stage to, to act. Thank goodness it's not like that now. <laughs> one of my very favorite bebop songs is The Land of Ubladi, which is one of Dizzy Gillespie's most famous songs. It is the exact epitome of bebop. It is bizarre, it's funny. She wrote it, and it became one of his most famous songs. Wow. I had no idea she wrote it. It's his song. Right, yeah. And it's brought up over and over again as the perfect example of what bebop is. It was all her. Wow. In the land of Ubladi, and there I met the two sisters, Bluey Da and Dewey Blee. And it's not just that she's a woman. She's the wrong kind of woman. As nightclub jazz begins, there's a really sharp shift. I think a lot of people have realized, like, in jazz, women can be singers, and that's almost all. Yeah. She's playing in the exact same club where Lena Horne is just starting. There's another really talented pianist named Hazel Scott, who is just starting up in this same club. But Lena Horne and Hazel Scott end up in the movies. Oh. Because, A, 
they are much lighter skinned than Mary Lou Williams. There's a big aspect of colorism, you know, that's even within racism. The lighter your skin is as mm-hmm. a black woman, the more socially acceptable you are. Mary Lou Williams is quite dark skinned. Mm. B, there is all of a sudden an expectation that women performers are going to be, they call them kittens. They're going to be flirty. They're going to be charming. They're going to flirt with the audience or the band leader. They're going to wink at you. You're going to be a classic jazz singer. Yes, exactly. What we think of as what a jazz singer does. You have to be flirty and draw the audience in with your sexual wiles. Mm -hmm. She absolutely refuses to do that. She will not do it. Mm. Even though she knows it's hurting her career, she can't bring herself to do it. Mm. To me, it seems like this is the same thing she was doing in vaudeville. This is putting on a show, and she already has rejected that. I won't do that anymore. I'm not going to swirl around on the piano stool with my dress up around my head. I'm a musician. Oh, right. She's already left that I am a real musician, and I should be taken seriously as a real musician. Yeah. That's definitely a part of it, where she made a real choice at a very young age when vaudeville was happening that, no, I'm not going to be a vaudeville performer. And I think there was a real paradigm shift in how she saw herself and what her role was. She really was a musician. Let the music and let my talent speak for itself. So that 20 years later, when it was more of a Hollywood glamour kind of pressure being put on women performers to be coy and cute. By that time, she just didn't see herself as that. She saw herself as a musician, yet she wanted success. She wanted to be seen by mainstream audiences. She just couldn't do what needed to be done to have the agent look at her in that way. She just drew a line. Although there was a price to pay, obviously. Oh, that sucks. It really sucks. So even though she is better than any of these other musicians, men or women, she can't get taken seriously. They don't have a slot for her. Hmm. I feel like this is where, in the movie plot or the play, she cuts off her hair and she dresses in men's clothes and she does what must be done in order to fit into that world. You know? Yeah. Like... There's no way forward for her. Yeah. Ah. So I think that's where we have this question, right? She really, really, really wants to be known. She wants to be mainstream. Lena Horne becomes a movie star. She can't even get a recording contract. Hmm. So what do you do in that situation? I feel like she could sell out and flirt a little and maybe Mm -hmm. get what she wanted. But then she wouldn't be her. Yeah, like that is becoming famous for a thing that she's not and that's not what she wants Mm -hmm. so I've tried to put myself in that situation if there's this thing that I desperately want and I could just change myself a little (laughs) bit and what what would you do in that situation I don't know what I would do yeah gosh if I wanted it so bad I, I think what I would do is probably coach myself into wanting something else. Hmm. Just spend all my energy trying to control what I can control. Like want to be flirty or just want something other than jazz? Want, 
Maybe I'd try to want to play jazz but have no one notice me. <laughs> you know? What would you do? I, I've gone like back and forth around this several times and I don't I don't think that I can put myself in that situation because I don't have a thing like that. Ah, yeah. You know, my instinct is to say, well, geez, it's not worth it. Just go do something else. But I don't have anything that would eat me alive if I couldn't do it. And that really seems to be how it was for her. That this wasn't something she loved. This was, it was what she had to do to stay alive. Hmm. There's a story that her friend Gray Weingarten tells about going to a party that's being thrown in honor of Mary Lou Williams. And she was at the party and she didn't really know anyone. And she was sort of feeling out of place and she realized that she couldn't find Mary Lou. She didn't know where she went off to. So she started looking for her. And then I don't know what possessed her to do this, but she opened a closet door and there was Mary Lou in the closet writing music <laughs> and Grace says and she didn't want to be disturbed <laughs> so I closed the door <laughs> wow and you know on the surface this is a really funny story it's the iconic mad musician who can't even get through a party without writing a song but I think that in terms of some of the things that happened to her later in her life, the story is actually, it demonstrates that music for her was not her profession. It wasn't a passion. It was almost like music was something that happened to her and not something that she did. She said that she would have to get the music out of her. It was sort of like an exorcism in a way. Mm. The challenge in telling her story was was to really do honor to her complexity and, and also to really deal with the pain and the struggle of being a female artist and a black female artist. Things were a struggle for her and to really know that maybe part of her creativity was, you know, I guess as always, you know, some of the creativity comes from the struggle, comes from the pain. So it's not just bebop that she sees as the future. She really, really wants to bring jazz into mainstream music, which in 1945 means classical. She was also hearing very orchestral sounds and atonal sounds. And so she had an idea of bringing jazz into the symphony space, into the classical space, which was just really not done in the yeah. late 40s and early 50s. Trying to take jazz into a whole other realm that really resisted the idea of jazz. So she starts composing a jazz orchestral suite called the Zodiac Suite with one piece for every sign of the Zodiac. She's very into astrology. <laughs> so at this point, a producer approaches her and he wants her to give a concert. And she says, yes, fine, I will do that. In fact, I'll do it for scale the same amount of money that just like an average background filler musician would have asked for for a concert. But what I want to do is I want my orchestral suite performed at Carnegie Hall with the Carnegie Pops Orchestra. <laughs> uh, just a little thing. Just a little thing. And the producer says, okay, yes, let's do it. 
No one has ever done anything like this before. It's performed in Carnegie Hall. She's the first black woman composer. She's the first jazz composer to perform in Carnegie Hall. She is so excited. Finally, finally, she's going to get her due. Her big, important piece is being performed at Carnegie Hall, and people are going to get it. They're going to mm-hmm. understand that she's a serious musician. Right. They hate it. Uh. It was probably just a little too forward-thinking and advanced at the time. That mm. just the critics just didn't know what to think. They didn't know what to think of her. They didn't know what to think of the fact that this woman is trying to make right. a jazz symphony. The critics were sort of all stepping in line with this is amateurish and we don't know what this is. Yeah, we didn't understand it, so it can't be good. (laughs) The fact that critics didn't get it, I think it devastated her. Oh, man. Basically, it's all of her nightmares come true. Is it an audience that doesn't understand jazz, period? Yeah, in 1945, those two worlds are still very, very separate. Mm. Reading the reviews now, all of my writer alarms go off and say, these critics are baffled. They have no idea what's going on and they're embarrassed that they have no idea what's going on. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to just smash it. It's so hard for us to understand how crazy this was because we do stuff like this all the time, right? The Rolling Stones play with the symphony. It was not happening. Those worlds will never touch at that point. Mm. She's gutted by this. This was going to be her finally, people are going to pay attention and understand who she is. And they don't. Mm. You know, what does a jazz musician do but go to Europe and try to find people there that maybe might be a little bit more open to, to her ideas? Unfortunately, there even, the Europeans weren't really into hearing avant-garde jazz. They were much more interested in what she calls old-time jazz from the 20s and 30s, sort of showmanship kind of jazz. I think the difficulty of being an artist and not being appreciated for the real immense talent that you have brought her to a breaking point. She's right back where she started. Wow. She's there for two years, getting more and more depressed. She finally comes home and has a complete nervous breakdown. She can't play. She can't compose. She can't do anything. She doesn't get out of bed for weeks. Hmm. This is something that has been with her throughout her life. And so she connected, I think, that spiritual intuition with her music. And what I mean is that she feels that musically, when she didn't know how to read, when she was too young to read music, she could intuit what the band was about to play before they played it. So she feels that all this fed into her early gift. And so there's a whole other side to her, I guess you could say her vision and her creativity. I mean, now we would clearly say severe depression. Yeah. Finally, she hears a voice. God tells her to buy a rosary. 
she buys a rosary, she goes to the Catholic Church, and the priest comes in and finds her just wailing on the floor. For a couple of years, all she does is go to church. She gets up in the morning, she goes to the Catholic Church, and then she comes home. She can't play music. She doesn't know what to do. She wants to serve God. The world is so lucky that Father Anthony Woods was the priest in that Catholic church that day. Because contrary to every story I've ever heard of a religious leader encountering a famous musician, he tells her, Mary Lou, this is your gift. Jazz is your gift, and it's what God is calling you to do. Wow. Finally, one of her priest friends brings her a plaque of St. Martin de Porras. She loves him because he is black. And she's sitting, staring at this plaque, and suddenly has a revelation, I would call it, and realizes that jazz comes out of spirituals, comes out of slavery. It comes out of the call of her people to God in their suffering. Mm. Jazz is religious music, and this is what God wants her to do. She really looked at jazz as being a purely spiritual music because its origin of coming from African American slaves, from our from from an African American heritage of yeah. struggle. That's spiritual. And so why wouldn't it fit within a spiritual setting? Father O'Brien says, you should write us a mass. God wants you to write a jazz mass. Ah, so she does. That is beautiful. It is beautiful. (laughs) It's performed in the church as a mass. And then it's performed several other places. She is on fire composing again. For the next 10 10 plus years, she's writing religious music. She's writing groundbreaking, totally new, astonishingly beautiful music. She writes this incredible hymn, The Black Christ of the Andes, that, I mean, this thing is 50 years old. I have never heard anything like this in my life. Still, no one is Mm -hmm. doing anything like what she was doing. Wow. I'm just so happy for her that she found a way to reconcile these two things that were so important to her, serving God and this music Mm. that that she couldn't get it out and it was killing her. And it completely changes her whole life. Basically, she died composing. Mm. She was composing a symphony piece called The History of Jazz on her deathbed. And at that point, it's not in the film. But Mary Lou became an artist in residence at Duke University in North Carolina. And I think being an elder stateswoman of jazz at that point, she was still creating, but her focus really became to save jazz and to teach the younger generation more about preserving the legacy of jazz. You know, her mission changed as she became older. She's directing the jazz band and teaching history of jazz with her priest friend, Father O'Brien. What? 
She and Father O'Brien co-teach history Are you jazz kidding me? at Duke University. That's the greatest. He also becomes her manager for the rest of her career. Is he, he's presumably, he sounds like a classic Irish Catholic priest. Classic Catholic oh. priest who recognized genius when it walked into his church. And this Irish Catholic priest <laughs> and Mary Lou Williams are taught history of jazz. jazz. <laughs> wow. I'm so relieved. I know. I didn't it's... think this story was going to have a happy ending. Yes, it it (laughs) has a sort of happy ending. She never really felt that she was recognized as she should have been. And she wasn't. Uh, You know, the fact that other people don't know her and she belongs among those Hall of Famers. And she isn't. And so hopefully that's starting to change. Wow. What a fascinating life. Mm. She's such a compelling, sad, beautiful, complicated, heart-rending, heartwarming story. Like jazz. Her life is jazz. (laughs) So I've linked all the CDs that you can get now on the website, as well as the biography. There's a beautiful children's book about her called The Little Piano Girl. (laughs) We have lots of rare photos of Mary Lou Williams. As Carol Bash says, you can hear all of this, but really the best and only way to understand Mary Lou Williams is to listen to her music. The cool part is, as of this month, you can stream this documentary, Mary Lou Williams, The Lady Who Swings the Band, on a Canopy account. Most public libraries now subscribe to Canopy. So if your library has a Canopy account, Canopy with a K, you can watch this film for free on your Canopy account. And if they don't have a Canopy account, go yell at them because you <laughs> need to watch this film. It's so good. How cool. Or tell your library to buy it, I guess. <laughs> the film came out in 2015. It's aired on PBS. It, it continues to be rebroadcast. The film is available for screenings. If you're interested in finding more about the film, log on to MaryLouWilliamsFilm.com and learn more about this incredibly talented, genius jazz artist. Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Smith. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's the best way for us to reach more people. And if you'd like to help support more women's history and more episodes of this podcast, please visit our website at whatshernamepodcast.com and click donate. This episode was edited by Olivia Mickle and What's Her Name is produced by Olivia Mickle and Katie Nelson.